Hello and welcome to Mental Filter. Thank you to those who are already loyal listeners to Mental Filter and welcome to those who are new to Mental Filter. Today's episode is a little bit different than what we've done in the past. So you're listening to Shmuel Fischler right now and this whole journey of Mental Filter started a bit over a year ago right towards when COVID had just started. And today's episode is a little bit of a throwback because it existed prior to the podcast starting. And in a large way, this was an inspiration for me starting the podcast of Mental Filter, which has just been a fabulous journey. I've been able to speak to so many interesting people and talk about meaningful things together. And people have given such uh, genuine positive feedback and room for me to grow, which is fantastic. So today's episode I is like today's episode is a conversation that I had the opportunity to have. First it was done through video and now I'm just turning it into an episode with someone by the name of Stuart Ralph. For those who don't know who Stuart Ralph is, he is in the UK. He is in the process of actually becoming a therapist. At the time we spoke, I do not believe that it was on the radar yet. And he is a, he has his own podcast. It's called The OCD Stories. He himself has been open about his struggle with OCD. And over the years, what has happened is that he's become an advocate for people struggling with OCD, people with family members struggling with OCD. And there's a lot more people than you may think. And he created this platform through podcasting that has become super powerful and super popular and super helpful for so many people who have been dealing with this and thinking that they are the only ones who are dealing with it. And now he's on his own journey to become a therapist at the time that this comes out, maybe he has become one already. But when I had a conversation with him, I had the fortune to be on his podcast and he was kind enough to talk with me. And by doing so, that really inspired me to give it a go and start a podcast. So this is a little bit of a homage to him. And it's also very informative and helpful that we talk about OCD and we talk about advocacy. And we talk about being in sort of, sort of the public eye to talk for people and interview people that are in that world of OCD. So I hope you enjoy. This is Mental Filter. Welcome, everyone, who is listening to our discussion. This is just a a great opportunity. My name is Shmuel Fischler. I am a clinical social worker located in Baltimore, Maryland, and I am the owner and director, lead clinician of the practice called CBT Baltimore, and we specialize in anxiety spectrum disorders, so OCD, panic, things like that, amongst other issues that people have. Another piece of our mission, which is what we're doing today, is really to share information, get good relevant content out there to the public and help people get connected and people understand more about anxiety and OCD and other things. So I'm really excited today to be able to do this on such a a platform. I'm personally looking forward because today's discussion is with someone who's well known within the OCD community, Stuart Ralph. 
who is joining us from across the pond, as they say. And he is going to tell us more about what he does, but I can tell you that he is a, a very popular podcaster within the OCD community, a tremendous advocate. The podcast is called The OCD Stories, and we're going to learn more about that. And we're going to discuss the journey that OCD Stories has had and the power of different mediums of connecting through the amazing technology we have today in storytelling and advocating and specifically with OCD. So thank you, Stuart, for being here. Thank you for inviting me. It's good to be here. Yeah. And I got the chance to meet you at the, the most recent conference yep. where you were given a well-deserved award. So I guess just to start off, tell us the genesis of the OCD stories and up until where we are today. Yeah, cool. OCD is something I experienced from the age of about seven. And when I really started to combat it, one of the ways I, I just wanted to put all my energy into something other than what was going on in my head, I realized well, if I'm suffering uh, and I'm learning all of this, let me just try and share it. So that was really what kind of started. It was originally the website where I shared other people's written stories. And then after a few months, I decided to do the podcast because I wanted to interview therapists, clinicians, and eventually people with OCD and just have those conversations. And I started really with just the goal of, I want to chat with these people. And if anyone wants to listen, that's great. And if it helps them even better, <laughs> but I wasn't trying to change the world or get thousands of downloads. It was really just a, it was a passion project and it was something to put all my energy into, like I said before, to really try and get out of my head three and a bit years on now. It's grown massively way beyond what I ever would have predicted. Do you know what the downloads are like till today? Uh, yeah, funny enough, about a week after that conference, which was July 2018, I broke a million downloads in total. Wow. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. tremendous. Um, and now it's fast approaching 1.5 million. Wow. Wow. So that's, I think it's just a tremendous resource. So as someone who's you know, experienced an OCD, what do you think the public perception of OCD is? I recently went to a high school and was giving a little presentation on like a little OCD 101. It's very interesting to hear what what's the perception. It's really embedded itself into our everyday vernacular. So I'm curious as someone who's had that experience yourself and then has the, the opportunity to interview so many different people, what's the public's perception of OCD? Yeah, I think the public's perception is really bad. And not to blame them. I don't think they're to blame because I always say this. I'm sure I'm very ignorant about other topics that I'm yet to be corrected on or yet to get the right information because we can only learn so much. We can only take in so much information. So we're going to naturally get things wrong. We're going to use expressions incorrectly, X, Y, and Z. And, and yes, yeah, so currently it's all about orderliness and cleanliness and tidiness. And that can absolutely be within the OCD spectrum, but it ends there. That's where, and it, it, it's a quirk, not working with people with OCD, but you see the misconceptions compared to the people you work with on a day-to-day -day basis. Whereas obviously, as we know, in reality, it's extremely troubling thoughts. And then the compulsions, which are often shown on TV as the kind of core of OCD, are just the things to, to reduce uh, anxiety. And it's so prevalent. I hear this. And obviously, I'm, I'm going to be more alert to it because of the podcast I do. I'm going to be more sensitive to it. But I was on the plane going to Edinburgh on the weekend just for a getaway. 
it's only sort of an hour flight from London. And I think they were Polish, a Polish family sitting behind me on the three seats behind. So they were speaking Polish and I kept hearing what I thought was OCD. But I thought maybe it was just some kind of Polish word to me that sounded like OCD. But so it was said about four times, five times in quick succession. And then the kid who was sitting directly behind me spoke English, started to speak English. He clearly said, it's my OCD. And I was like, I knew it. I knew that's what they were saying. Um, And it sounded like the parents were making fun out of something he was doing. And I couldn't see, obviously, because they were behind me. And he, he was neutral when he said it. So maybe it is something he's battling with and his parents can't fully grasp it yet. But the way his parents were doing it, it, it was a joke. It wasn't this serious affliction. And I think that obviously they didn't mean to be mean about the diagnosis, etc. But unfortunately, that it, it's so embedded in people's day-to-day vernacular and they don't yet see how incorrect it is. And I think largely to blame that is the media, that is the TV shows, the films over the years. It's the script writers who haven't done their research to truly figure out what OCD is. And it's OCD, schizophrenia has had a bad rap as bipolar. So yeah, I think it really stems from there. They need to do their research, disseminate sonifications of what OCD is. One that's coming out in the UK, which is called Pure. Yeah, um, I was going to ask yeah. you about that. That, that. Oh, cool. Did it come out already? Not yet. So it's out. Oh, it might be out by the time people see this, but it's out at the end of January in the UK. And then hopefully it will roll up to the States and Canada, etc. a bit later on this year. I saw, I went to the premiere and I saw the first two episodes in London. It was fantastic. Yeah, they did a, a great job of blending comedy because you have to have the comedy to get the general public involved. Otherwise, they don't want to see a serious drama about mental health because that's also not good because mental health is then seen as something taboo you don't want to be involved with. So the comedy helps merge people together. But then when they, they show real quick, fast, intrusive thought scenes and it's around sexual and violent intrusive thoughts, and that is quite disturbing when you see it. So you, you go from it being funny to being very shocking. And the, the audience weren't laughing at the intrusive thought scenes. And to me, that showed they'd done a great job of really affecting people. So I think that's going to do a lot. And it's on one of the, the main channels in the UK. So hopefully that would do a lot to start to rewrite people's views. That's amazing because to me, that makes it real. It's not in a bubble. It's not this like mystical thing that is contained in this certain scenarios or certain people or certain areas. It's real and it goes, like you said, it can go from, that's real life. It goes from laughing to crying to being anxious to back to laughing. And I, I think that's, that's fabulous. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think people are going to love it. Speaking of which, the past three years, how would you describe the power, the amazing power of something like a podcast? It doesn't have to be a podcast. It could be really any, any platform, just the, the, the power of connecting and storytelling share a little bit of what that experience has been and being able to be a witness to the the power of that yeah for me have it like when I feel most alive and I think that's partly why I'm training to become a therapist is I I enjoy hearing those conversations and to be a therapist Mm -hmm. you have to be willing to hear a lot of people's conversations (laughs) and and often very tough conversations or, or stories so for me And I think growing up, I always wanted to be heard, as most humans do. And if they don't often get that that need to feel heard, 
I think it can hinder a lot of people. So for me, I want to help give people that opportunity to be heard. And so that's what the podcast has been about for me is just letting people tell their story. And maybe it's the first time they've told it, but I know that's such a cathartic and cleansing experience just to get it out there uh, and start to work it through with someone else, even being a mutual sounding board. And then I think from an evolutionary point of view and historical, we always would have sat around a campfire telling stories, sharing that. And that's how we would have kept our histories going before we had the ability to write things down in, in, in any detail. And taking that quite literally, I, I run an OCD camp in the UK. It's current the second year now. But there's something about being around a campfire and people sharing their story. It's so primal and primitive. And it's just something so hardwired in us. And I've experienced that when I've gone camping myself. Some of the best conversations I've had have been around that kind of fire because it, there's just something that strips away the ego. I think storytelling is, it's almost like a, it's almost a sneaky way to share and express something that if it was much more frontal, it would be so much more uncomfortable. We're all living a story, really, or constantly. So being able to engage in storytelling is like weaving in, you know, what our real life in a story form. It's not just, oh, here's my problem and here's how hard it is. It's, it's a story. How has it evolved over the past three years as far as from your experience of interviewing people? If you were, I'll ask you like a nice classic question, if you can go back three years and go back to the Stuart from who was just starting out, what kind of insights or tips would you tell yourself back then? I'll say don't start. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm joking. Um, although, yeah, at times it can bring its own stresses and its own pressures and wanting to do it right and wanting to keep up with the weekly schedule. But majority of it, I'm so glad I started and I wouldn't say that to him. In terms of advice, there's definitely some areas around sound quality, tips and tricks around that, just things to avoid but not a great deal in that sense from an actual technical point of view i wouldn't say it's really changed that much i don't do video anymore but that that was just because it was my personal preference as opposed to there being some kind of uh, solid reason for doing it i think what i did learn though is just to be more natural and more real and i i think i did have that from episode one but i think i allowed myself to let go of kind of professionalism and what comes up and, and just allow it to be and share my story as and when is needed and I trust my gut on that and I find that I don't overshare but I share enough to add extra elements to it so it's not just me asking questions or um, and I find sometimes that the guests ease up then and then they, they open up also what I've noticed because I interview sometimes very serious people who maybe they come from academic backgrounds and they're not used to opening up or, or therapists and sharing their story. Right. We get told in, in training is careful with self-disclosure, what you, what you say. And I think that then rolls out when people do interviews, they're quite reserved. And there's certain questions you can ask that really crack people open and they always reveal way more than you would have expected <laughs> them to. Um, and I find out well, that's where the questions at the end, like you just did with me, which is I ask, what would you uh, ask your 20 year old self? And you find you get very real answers of that. If you had a billboard, what would you get people to say on it? It's those ones at the end that really cracks them. I think that the previous thing that you said about using whatever's in the moment, I, I will say that I can almost guarantee that will be a tremendous asset once you do finish your training as a clinician, because it's use the moment. The moment, I think, is going to be a tremendous asset for you clinically.
So yeah, good advice. Thank you. I think that that's a great experience. I imagine that it's putting out, you know, content and podcasts and videos, whatever it is, you don't necessarily get the opportunity to really know how much you're reaching. And have there been times where it's almost like a, a light bulb or experience or someone contact you and it's, wow, that's really validating. Like this really, this really helped someone out there that I didn't even think that I would reach. Yeah. Yeah. It is humbling. I do get a fair few emails come through saying, thank you. Sometimes I tell me this story because of you, I found a, finally found the right sort of therapy and therapist uh, and I'm doing better. So it's stuff like that. Others, your podcasts help me feel less alone, which is really nice to hear. So all different ones like that. And it, it's really humbling. And when I've met people at the various OCD conferences, that's been really touching to, to meet those people uh, and hear their stories. I got an email the other day from a therapist in the UK who I would argue is one of the top two in terms of knowledge, research and all this mm -hmm. in, in the UK. So to get them to email me asking if I had a, an episode on a particular topic because they wanted to share it with their clients, to me, that was a real light bulb of, of wow, this person who has done more training than I'm, than I'm ever going to do because they became a psychiatrist and I don't want to do that much. <laughs> to be asking me, it's like, wow, yeah, because I don't think I see the worth in it sometimes. That's great. And yeah, it's almost like you have a, a catalog now of, and then for someone who is harm OCD or mm. sexual intrusive thoughts, and you can like tap that. And like you said, I'm not alone. So yeah. to piggyback off of that, I'm sure you've met people. I've met people. There's millions of people who unfortunately have not yet accessed resources, therapy, support, whatever it is. And some people who have, and I certainly have that in, in my practice, where people do feel like I am the only one who, who has experience. I had a call just the other day of someone who was considering coming in and just the way she was describing it was, and I hope I'm not weirding you out. And uh, I hear this yeah. a lot and it, it's, there's a name for it and that's it's intrusive thoughts and things like that. But what would be something that you would say to that person who's doesn't get out much, is fairly alone, fairly isolated, and may have OCD, and, and having all the experience that you've had of being able to connect, thankfully, with so many people, both clients and clinicians and researchers, like what kind of message would you want to give to that person? Yeah, yeah. What you said, I've had many people email me say, you know, I want to see a therapist, but I'm worried about X, Y, and Z, sharing the thoughts, or what happens if the therapist locks me up, which as we know is an OCD <laughs> worry. <laughs> it's funny in hindsight, obviously, yeah, not when people are experiencing it, but yeah, what would I say? If you are in that, in, in the case of that person, if you are struggling to, to, to get to therapy and you have the means to have therapy, first of all, but it, the thing that's holding you back is your worries, try and you know scaffold find everything possible to get you there if that makes sense so if it is if, if there's a couple of people that know about it just bring them along obviously check with the therapist but I'm sure any reputable therapist wouldn't mind if you brought 20 people with you to the first session if it got you in the room and then from there you can slowly remove other people out of the room I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's, for me, it's like, there's always a way that, that I guess that's what I would say, no matter how hard it is, there's always a way. And you've sometimes got to be creative and maybe right now you don't have the capacity to be creative, but speak to someone and get them to find ways to think of ways for you and how they can get you in that treatment room.
and for that first session. The other one, it could be that maybe right now you don't want to do therapy or don't have means right now for therapy, whatever it is, just try and speak to someone you can trust to, to share that because it's not going to cure you. It's not going to solve your problems, but it will make you feel less alone. And that is a big positive step in the right direction. And then from there, that person could support you and help you to find books you can read in the meantime. There are many great books out there on OCD now. It could be they help you find the podcast or whatever it is or various OCD blog posts or maybe a support group through the various OCD charities. That's a big one because you can go to one of those and you don't have to speak. So for the first session, you can sit there. You don't have to share anything. Hearing other people's stories just A, allows you to open up, but B, just makes you feel less alone. I really agree with everything you're saying and just the getting the message that you are not alone. That's like a huge step. And and for families out there, so if there's family members of people out there, or parents or spouses or siblings, your reaction to them sharing sets a precedent. So if someone is, is sharing with you, hey, I had this like really weird thought. And then if your reaction is, that is really weird. What's up with you? Just stop thinking that or something like that, where it's not, maybe you don't have the education. I'm not blaming anybody, but that reaction it really sets the tone, I think, for if they're going to share again. Yeah. How would you, being maybe on the other side of the curtain a little bit, for those who aren't familiar or those who've only dipped their toes in it, how would you describe the OCD community? I've been fortunate enough, and I know you have, to be somewhat connected. And, but how would you describe the OCD community that's out there? Yeah, absolutely. I would, the only words I can say is it's one of the most loving and like, compassionate communities I've ever uh, been a part of. Obviously, I I guess for me, it's whether you treat people with OCD or you have OCD. If a lot of your life is around the the topic of OCD, when you meet many others who are talking about OCD or have OCD, you're going to feel a lot more connected. And I guess it's the same for people, football fans. They find other people who support. And um, and by football, for those... I'm talking soccer, yeah. I know. The the real football, yeah. (laughs) The one you actually use your foot for. Yes. Yes, um, I'm not, not going to disagree with that. <laughs> I'm going to stop talking before I lose any more American fans. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, so Man United fans or the Baltimore Ravens, they find other people who support the Baltimore Ravens. And when they find someone who's talking about Joe Flacco, if he's still at Baltimore Ravens. Oh, very good. They feel, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they feel connected. And it's that, what is it? Someone says, I can't remember the, the guy who said it, but Someone like a friend is when you meet someone and they say, oh, me too. I thought I was the only one. And uh, I can't remember who said that. It was maybe Oscar Wilde or someone. Probably not. But yeah, so for me, that's what I felt instantly in this community. And everyone wants to help everyone. There's so many Facebook support groups that you go in. Everyone's sharing. Everyone's rallying you up. If you have a hard day, people put a message and people support you. At the conferences, people are happy to talk to you, connect, share. And I think that's where you learn a lot of the various resources and get a lot of the tips is from learning from others. And yeah, for those that have social anxiety as well, that's what's good about social media. Yeah, ironic as it is. Yeah. Right. Social media. Yeah, social anxiety. Yeah. But that's what I mean by like the scaffolding. It's like a crutch because you don't then have to be in a room talking to someone, although that is actually one of the treatments for social anxiety is you can go in the Facebook group and connect with people that way. 
and then over time maybe you build up to the the conference or a coffee with someone or the support group there's always ways of of getting involved in the community and i know many of the charities do various like sponsorship and events like the isdf do the is it walk the mile walk or something yeah the the yeah. walk for a million steps for OCD. a million steps yeah so that's a great way to meet people and and you know this and i know this i think what's really unique about the conferences is i haven't been to other conferences where it's such a seamless mixture of people who treat OCD, people who research OCD, and people who have OCD, and family members of people that have OCD. And it's, you don't even know, you don't even know who's who, and it really doesn't make a difference. And frankly, I don't know the numbers on it, but there's a significant amount of people who treat OCD, or research OCD, that have had OCD themselves, or currently have OCD. And I think for most of the cases, I think that makes uh, for a better clinician. Yeah, I yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think I said this on, on my speech when I was accepting that award was the thing I love about the ISDF conferences, and I think the Amer- the ISDF, the American charity, does this exceptionally well, is they they yeah, they bring family members, people with OCD and treatment providers all in the same building. And there's no hierarchy that you may get at some other psychological conferences in America and in the UK and other places. And to me that's priceless. And I think that's what makes those conferences so special. And also, I think it's, it's that chicken or the egg, because for me, it's, is this happening because OCD people are so nice and they do this? Because I think where, where people with OCD, they're, they're thought to make them second guess almost everything. That they've become more conscientious and self-aware than the average person has ever had to be. So in that way, I think OCD people are naturally, I don't want to say a bit nicer, but I think they've been bullied into it by their brain where they have to be a bit nicer. And I think the clinicians want to be around them because they're wonderful people to treat. Obviously, not always. There's obviously anger and stuff that comes up for everyone. But generally speaking, because of the the way they think about things, they're just more self-aware. I think maybe that's why. Yeah, I haven't figured that one out yet. And it's hard to say without getting political. Yeah, and I, I think it's a nice way of approaching it because yeah, I believe in, in 12 steps when I think I'm going to paraphrase here. You, you get in, get what you need and get out. Yeah. So I think it's a nice way of approaching OCD is that it doesn't have, to, it's not necessarily all bad. Almost use what OCD is giving you. I remember, you just reminded me, I think this dovetails very nicely with what you just said. I remember a couple years ago, I had a group, an, an OCD group specifically for men at the time. And I asked the question that I, I think it was uh, part of the goals group, Dr. Grayson, you know, had, and I asked the question, what has OCD given you? Which is like a little counter, counterintuitive to, to, to think about that. What has it given me? And I still remember one response from one of the, one of the people there. And this gentleman said that it's really given me the, a sense of compassion for people because I just really know that people struggle and it's made me sensitive and it's also made me a lot less judgmental because he knew for himself that I could be walking around, look like everything's going well, functioning, doing whatever what I need to do, but inside, and that's something that's uh, synonymous with OCD is that it could be really just turmoil and turmoil and turmoil inside and people aren't necessarily aware. So he said, I've really learned, it was almost a gift to him, which was really powerful to hear that 
he was able to be so much less judgmental people because I know that everybody has something that's going on. And now that I've experienced it with OCD, it's almost made me more sensitive, more empathic, more understanding and less judgmental. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's then, yeah, it's absolutely. I think that there's some gifts to be had, but it's getting using CBT and ERP and X, Y, and Z to get it down to the point where you get to the root of the issue. Because even, even OCD in terms of the amygdala and the overactive part of the brain firing off anxiety, it's, it's just gone extreme. But that's actually a good mechanism to have because without it, you would go face to face with a lion and not think twice about it. Right. But it's just gone too far. Uh, and even getting that down. But then, yeah, for me, it, it taught me that, as your client said, it taught me that empathy and that compassion. That, yeah, I, I can pinpoint, I can pinpoint the day I think I, I built compassion, the ability oh, really? to, I'm sure I had it before then, but in abundance, it was, it's very clear to me in my memory. I won't go into detail, but I was about 10 years old and I was hanging out with a family friend and I said something to her, which I thought I was just being playful but I didn't realize that it has actually come across mean. And she let me know that she was upset by this. And I remember that just hit me like a knife. And I'd already had OCD by this point. And I think my OCD brain latched onto that. And I felt terrible for so long. And I was ruminating it, trying to figure it out, doing compulsions X, Y, and Z. But that was clearly the time. From that moment on, I was always thinking about other people's feelings to my own detriment at times. But because of that, I do what I do now. I'm training as a therapist. I do the podcast. It can go too far. So that gift was also, like I said, to my detriment. It became a bit of a curse. So now, through my own therapy, I'm learning to dial that back. But I know what I'll be left with is like sieving for gold is that, that nugget of gold. Beautiful. Yeah. It's finding that sweet spot. Absolutely. In all... Throughout the, in the three years, I don't even know how many episodes there have been of the podcast. How many have there been? Uh, one, six, seven. One, six, seven. Um, five, there, seven, sorry. Five, is there seven. a proportion? Do you, are you aware of proportion of clinician, researcher, client? Yeah, clients. Clients probably about 30%. I mm-hmm. do them more regularly now than I used to, but it probably bounces out about 30. God, because there's obviously therapists, clinical psychologists, psychiatrists, and researchers. So researchers are probably like 5%, pure researchers, that is. Right. Some psychologists do research as well. Right. And then psychiatrists, 4%. And then clinical psychologists and therapists that make up the rest, whatever that is. What kind of, whether it's across clients or whether it's across clinician, researchers, what kind of themes, like when you're in a unique position where you get to see a large number of yeah. clients, clinicians, and a diverse cohort of them. What kind of themes have you noticed over the years of when you get to see so many different people who have OCD, so many different clinicians? What are some of the, I'm curious as to some of the themes that have come out for you. Yeah. So from a, I guess it comes up in in the client side of things, people telling their story, but definitely from a clinician point of view, ultimately, if I boil every single episode down, it would just come down to the word uncertainty. And from a therapist's point of view, uh, my work is done here. Just <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's all of the advice comes down to learn to tolerate and accept and make space for uncertainty in your life. Obviously it's way more complex than that, mm-hmm. but whenever I've said that word to the therapist, they've gone, that's it. Like, and then from the people's stories point of view, yeah, if you hear all of the stories that how it navigates through, 
you can they don't use this word necessarily but it, you could absolutely boil it down just to that word it's the inability or the unwillingness is probably a better way of saying it to have that uncertainty in your life and as we know it's what you resist persists and that's what kind of erp counteracts in terms of other themes a big one is for people's stories is them feeling alone so when they're telling their story a large part of it is them feeling alone and then they talk about when they found the right therapist or people, I know doctors often put down Google and they laugh when people come in because they've Googled their symptoms or whatever. I guess I'm thinking more of GPs at the minute. Yeah, I remember when I went to, my GP was fantastic actually when I first went to say I felt I had OCD at the age of 17. But I do remember her saying, kind of laughing that I'd use Google. Not laughing, but it was that kind of sly smile. And, uh, and I've had it other times when I've gone to the GP and it's, if it wasn't for Google, I never would have made that phone call. And a big thing that comes up in the stories is, yeah, how they read one thing online or maybe they heard something on my podcast or they saw a talk on YouTube from someone else and something just clicked for them. And that kind of light bulb moment is a big theme through the stories. Yeah, I hear the same thing. I hear the same thing. I started reading something about it and oh my, this is me. Yeah. <laughs> this is me. It's talking directly to me. I think to defend the doctors, where I think it can be more gray is with physical illnesses. Because if I go to, um, in the UK, it'd be the NHS website, and I type in sore throat, achy back, it will come up with eight very different things. It's something from a very serious physical illness all the way down to the flu or something. But with OCD, when you find a page that's talking about the symptoms and obsessions, for me, it was like, tick tick that everything was like <laughs> this is this it can't be anything but this it was so clear so to continue with that what has so when you talk about themes throughout the course of meeting all these clients and clinicians and researchers has anything surprised you or caught you off guard as far as in some of these interviews and connecting with so many different people yeah there are there are definitely some personal stories from time to time that kind of shock me Mm -hmm. or make me feel instantly empathy for them or and as I'm sure you get but sometimes when you're hearing people's stories for the first time it can hit you and be like I really feel, you feel for every client but sometimes there's certain things that are said that are just like oh, I can't believe that happened or, or so those things shock me in terms of the clinicians the thing is I always learn something I think that's or maybe that is the biggest shock is that after 150 plus episodes and many of them talking about exposure and response prevention <laughs> therapy, which top line is very simple, but it's not when you get into the weeds of it. So I thought after 30 episodes, I thought I was done. I thought there's nothing else I can learn here. I don't think I was being arrogant. I just generally There's only didn't. so many ways you can spell ERP. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that was the big revelation to be this many and be like, I still feel like there's so much ground to be covered. That was a big kind of revelation. Yeah. There's the only other thing is sometimes the way people say things really come I interviewed someone the other day and they said something and I was like, wow, I've never seen it. I've never looked at OCD from that point of view. And that was real. I, I get a lot of those kind of eye opening moments. And I think that's another important thing. I think even if I am covering the same ground over and over again, every human is unique and one human will hear one thing and it won't mean anything to them. But to someone else, it, it, was, it is that light bulb moment. But again, I do an episode next week. That other person at light bulb moment hates this episode, but the other person that didn't is gobsmacked by it. Yeah. I could not agree more. And it's really 
I personally tell every client that comes that it's like matchmaking. I could be super experienced and super trained and all this, and that's great. But I have my certain style and my flavor, and that has to work. And my way of explaining something might go over one person, and then it might like really hit the spot for another. So I couldn't agree more. Have you noticed any evolution as far as we're both familiar and a lot of people I'm sure are familiar with the different themes of OCD, but have you noticed any sort of change maybe as time goes on and technology changes and just society changes? Have you noticed any changes in the presentations of OCD? Yeah, you know, not as much as I thought I would. That's a really good question. I have noticed, I I had a, a written story around transgender OCD. Okay. Or transgender themed. I always like to say the themed part. But yeah, so th- that, and I've seen it around the web a lot more than say when I first started the podcast. Well, the, or I guess OCD Advocacy was about four and a half years ago I started. It wasn't the OCD story. It was on my own personal site at the time. So at that point, I wouldn't have seen any articles, any stories written about transgender themed OCD. And maybe they were there, but people were too scared to talk about it because there's no other examples of it You don't want to be the first person on the World Wide Web saying, I worry about this or that. But I definitely see more of that. I can't think of anything else. I was expecting to see loads of Ebola worries when that came out. Did you see anyone with that? No, I did not. No. To me, that was, and maybe it was because the news, at least in the UK, we held on to it for about two, three weeks, like it was the end of the world. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure it actually was for some people, unfortunately. But they, they, they were initially broadcasting it like it was the plague. And then suddenly after three weeks, there was no mention of it, which is another reason why you probably shouldn't watch the news. Uh, Interestingly enough, I haven't. I would imagine with the, the type of climate that we are in and the bombardment, like you yeah. said, the news of just the tragedy after tragedy and, or this looming or that prediction, you would think that maybe there would be more of that theme i personally haven't seen it maybe other people have seen it i would be curious to hear about that i do notice one thing in in countries so don't no one quote me on this this isn't scientific this is just my observations but in india for example if i I see someone comment on on something i've done or an email and they're from india it's usually one or two things it can obviously be other things but it's either homosexual themed ocd or it's a religious ocd and largely, it's been Hindus who have emailed me, more so than Muslims or Sikhs. Obviously, there are other religions in India, just to caveat that. But Hindus make up a large part of India, I believe, in terms of religions. So it could be that is why I've only got emails from Hindus, because of the population. Yeah, it's very much worries around being bad in faith or around sexuality. And it makes sense. They've only just legalized gay marriage. So it'd be interesting to see over the next 10 years how if that dips because it's now legal oh not gay marriage no not gay marriage it's it's just not a crime anymore to be gay uh, I, I think don't quote me on that anyone and i'm probably sound very well, yeah so it's actually pretty fascinating that no matter where you go in the world the themes could be different and it could be sexual thoughts or harm thoughts or in different cultures look differently but at the end of the day as the saying goes uh, the more things change the more they stay the same And so in this case, it's really going back to the same concepts, the same fundamental concepts and principles when it comes to treating OCD across the span, across the cultures. I want to get back to something you mentioned briefly, and in the time we have, maybe we can get to it. You mentioned advocacy. So I'm really curious to hear 
from you, what your experience has been with advocacy, what does it look like within the OCD community, and hopefully what you still hope to accomplish when it comes to advocacy in the OCD world. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, advocacy is just, it doesn't even have to be someone with OCD, you know, what you're doing right now. Obviously, I don't know if you, you have OCD or not, but you're, let's say you don't, you, what you're doing is advocacy. You're advocating for people who, who, who can't have a voice or don't want to have a voice or don't want to share that voice. You're giving them a platform. So for me with the podcast, it was, yeah, just giving people a voice who haven't been able to speak so far and who want to speak. So advocacy can be creating some kind of audio media project, or it can literally be going on those ISDF walks. It could be going to a conference and just talking to others. It can be going to your support group on a weekly basis and helping people. It could be doing press. There's Catherine Benfield in the UK. She does a lot for press around maternal OCD. You can do it in your school newspaper if you don't have to go big news sites or anything like that. Yeah, so for me, advocacy is just spreading that message. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be small. One thing I, I guess, pride myself on is from the get-go, I, was, I just wanted to focus on recovery. And that word can stick for some people, but for me, it works. And uh, yeah, so for me, I just wanted to focus on recovery because there's so much out on the web, or at least when I started, it has seemed to have changed to a more, I don't want to say positive, more uh, constructive message. Because you'd find in forums and support groups online, it would all be people just telling their stories, but there would be no quote unquote happy ending or no, at least it's on the up kind of message. And for me, I knew those were out there and I wanted to collect them and share them to say that this is possible, it is treatable, you can live the life you want to live. And I like the quote, success leaves clues. So by sharing other people's stories, you can pick out what they did and test it out for yourself. So yeah, was there, I'm sure there were other parts to your question. But I... Yeah, so Stuart, I, I thank you. And I know that the hundreds and thousands of people out there who listen to you and watch you, thank you for the work that you do and the advocacy that you do. And I know things like this will inspire other people and by osmosis, that's advocacy in itself in the fact that other people will find the bravery to share as well. And something that's unique, I think, to OCDs is that people who have OCD, I find to be the most creative. They're super creative. And the OCT is super creative in trying to ensnare or entrap people into these very unique situations and getting them involved in, in different rituals. And we could use that creativity. You know, I myself as a clinician try to incorporate as much comic relief and we're able to laugh together, not at, together we're able to laugh at it and use that creativity in order to give over the message. I remember watching this really powerful video of a gentleman who was at a poetry slam and was talking about OCD. And while it was something that was so uh, serious and it was eloquent, but was also very creative and used his talents to be able to share something that was uh, a really important lesson about OCD. And I had a client, a former client, to, uh, a couple years back who in person would have a very difficult time to be able to even say the words OCD. But at a certain point, we found out how talented she is with the written word. And she was able to write so eloquently and so powerful about her experience with OCD, what it's like to have OCD, and describing OCD, things like that. I think it's important to be able to tap into such creativity. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm excited to see where you go with this and the, the guests you get on. Stuart, again, I thank you so much for being a part of this and coming on and joining me, giving, me your, giving us your time 
And I'm sure that this will inspire other people, like I said before. And I hope you have the continued strength and energy and inspiration and motivation to continue doing what you're doing and inspire other people and be a part of this big movement to help other people who are struggling with OCD. Thank you again.